They didn't realize we were seeds. They didn't realize you were seeds. They open doors so others can walk through them. Your legacy is every life you have ever touched. I'm Stella Sagliari and this is Salt the Podcast. Welcome to Salt the Podcast, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. My guest today is Mirad Khalil from Your Egyptian Doula. Mirad is based in Cairo, Egypt, and is a multilingual health systems researcher, gender and sexual reproductive health and rights advocate. She is a feminist, a doula, and birth educator who is passionate about ensuring the right to health for all. Mirad is specialized on obstetric violence with her Master of Science in Public Health from the Kitt Royal Tropical Institute in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. She has published her research on obstetric violence in Egypt and the region in book chapters and peer-reviewed publications, most recently in the International Journal of Gynecology and Obstetrics. Meret is also the founder and CEO of Your Egyptian Doula, the first doula organization of its kind in Egypt and the region, working to educate, advocate, and empower expecting parents on their rights in childbirth to improve quality of respectful maternal care. Mirad also works at the WHO Regional Office in Cairo as a consultant on COVID-19 response, gender equity, and health system strengthening, focusing on achieving universal health coverage, protecting marginalized and vulnerable populations, and advancing global health security. Mirad is full of knowledge, full of energy. She's a powerhouse, and the conversation with her was very inspiring. Among other things, because we talked about a lot, we talked, of course, about what is a doula. We talked specifically about your Egyptian doula, about obstetric violence as a global systemic problem, about how birthing people can become their own medical advocates during pregnancy and labor. We spoke about why the language around uh, birth matters a lot. And we learn, of course, who has been her soul and who does she want to inspire and a lot more than that. So enjoy this episode, everybody. Welcome, Miret. I'm so happy that you're here with us today. Stella, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be on SALT, the podcast. It's a huge honor for me personally and for your Egyptian doula uh, to have this amazing opportunity to be a part of this uh, series and this community and this uh, sisterhood. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, so share with us. Who are you? We want to know a little bit about you. Okay, so let me tell you a little bit about me and my story. Um, I am, uh, wow, <laughs> existential crisis moment, right? You have to <laughs> briefly introduce yourself. No, I, I'm an Egyptian uh, women's health advocate. I am a health systems researcher. I am a birth doula. I'm a feminist. Um, I am currently living in Cairo, Egypt. I'm from here. I was born and raised here. I've always, my entire life, since I was maybe a toddler who was crawling or who can articulate 
what do you want to be when you grow up or what are you interested in in the world? I've always been deeply, deeply interested in mummies and like pun intended. I know when it's when it's just audio, it's hard to like read the facial funnies, but mummies in terms of both Egyptology and all of that and also mummies in terms of like pregnancy and birth. I've always, <laughs> always, always been very fascinated by that. And uh, yeah, it's always been a dream of mine to be a supporter or an active um, yeah, participant in a way in the, the birth process. So from there, I became extremely interested in women's health. Um, as a student, I ended up pursuing my studies in public health or global health specifically. I did my first degree in public health and business. I was living in the States. That's also where I got exposed to uh, what doulas are and what midwives are, because here in the Egyptian medical system, women-centered care, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, is not the norm, let's just say. Um, So for us as an entire medical system, nurse midwives or certified professional midwives do not exist as a cadre in the system here. So most births are attended by obstetricians. So to me, as a little kid, or not a little kid, I guess, as a student, as a young person growing up and trying to envision what, what does it look like for me to really follow my dream or follow my passion or try to access that vocation, it only looked like a very defined thing. Like you have to be an obstetrician, you have to go to med school, you have to become an OBGYN in order to be able to help women in that phase of their life. And being in the States was like mind-blowing and earth-shattering for me because it really opened up my my worldview to, nope, there's a lot of other types of health systems, a lot of other types of professions, um, and especially in maternal health. Um, So I did my degree in public health. I ended up working at an amazing um, community clinic where the entire maternal care was run by midwives. And for me, What made this an extremely special experience was that this was a federally qualified health center. And I know the the U.S. health system is very complicated, but so to put it very simply, the purpose of this clinic was that it was a community clinic that served a very high risk group of people. And for the most part, this clinic was um, serving majority folks of color. It was a predominantly midwife of color clinic serving a community of color community and families. Um, And to me, that was beautiful. It was so inspiring to to see that interaction between moms who for the first time felt like, nope, my care provider has probably gone through a similar life experience than me. They look Hmm. like me. I feel safe. And yeah, to me, that was a very foundational part of... um, yeah, stepping into the person that I am as an advocate, as a public health person, um, and now as a birth worker. Um, So working at the clinic there, I was working mostly on the advocacy side, um, which is again related to my inner public health nerd. Um, And I got to spend a lot of time with the midwives there. I, they sponsored my doula training. And so I would take on call shifts with them. So the first births I attended as a birth worker officially Uh, or as a doula, I guess, were with midwives. And that was super formative for me. Um, And then from there, fast forward a little bit after that, I moved back home to Egypt. And I discovered, yep, wow, the system is still the same. We're still mostly 
births are being attended by doctors and by mostly, I mean, we're talking about over 90%. Um, there are no midwives. There are no doulas or very few, very, very, very few doulas who work um, in Egypt. When I moved back to Egypt, I had moved back for a job uh, that was very fitting to my career. So I was very excited for the gig um, to move home. I moved home for a position with the WHO. And as someone who works in public health, I was like, wow, this is a great opportunity for me and for my career. Uh, when I moved back to Egypt, there were very few doulas working. And that's really where your Egyptian doula started. So it came out of a need that I saw in my community that women are having babies and women need support and women need education and also out of a need in terms of a health system. So looking at, at, a, at a national level or a policy level, we have system level problems here. And I think I am maybe blessed and cursed that I work in this field. So I work as a public health researcher. That's my day job outside of being a doula and outside of running your Egyptian doula. Uh, I work at WHO as a health system consultant. And so I get to look at that from a very high level lens. What does the health system look like? What are our structures looking like? And yeah, and especially now with the COVID response, how are systems built and structured to serve people? So we can go off on a very different tangent and vent about that forever. <laughs> but all of that to um, to say that really it's... Um, it's very interesting to be able to look at it from a systems perspective of how do the systems and the structures in this country or really globally also not serve women. Women-centered care continues to be a huge gap. And also from like a one-on-one -on -one level when I work with clients and when I work with moms who, yeah, are, are having to navigate through like not just the cultural nuances and challenges, of being a mom in in yeah a society that just puts a lot of pressures on you but also navigating a health system that's not built around you um that was stop that was a very very long introduction <laughs> no um, but it's good it's good many things no it's but... good you went and, and and i like because now we actually want to talk about your egyptian doula and i like because you already touched upon some things and you also showed us that you have really a holistic um, perspective on things, having had experience abroad, having seen things can be different, right? And then coming back with this energy and realizing, wow, I want to bring it here, but it's so tough. And then at the same time, working also, um, yeah, on a higher level, let's say, uh, and, and, and see other things also more structural and giving you so much knowledge from so many different perspectives. I, th I think this is amazing. Um, and still being in touch with the people on the ground, actually, through being a doula. So, yeah, you, you already said it. You are the founder of your Egyptian doula. And um, it would be great if you could share. I mean, you already did actually share quite a lot. But maybe you could share with the listeners who maybe have never heard the term doula. What is a doula? And um, also a little bit more about your work, actually, in, in Egypt. In, you're based in Cairo. How could you enter into the hospitals? Because you said when I came back, I realized we don't actually have a lot of doulas. Yeah. So maybe you can also share some of the challenges about your team. Just give us a, a bit of a, of, a, of a background to your Egyptian doula, but also what you encounter on the ground. Also some changes that you have accomplished. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. So your Egyptian doula is a very, very small initiative to try to improve the quality of birth 
for expecting parents and expecting families in Egypt. And we're hoping also through our advocacy and through our research to push a little bit of that ripple effect out to yeah, other Arabic speaking countries and other, yeah, other moms in other areas of the world or expecting parents really to, yeah, I think it's it's really important. So your Egyptian doula exists to do three things. So we do, we educate, advocate, and empower expecting parents through different avenues, through different, yeah, things that we do. We offer childbirth education classes. We offer doula support services. Um, and we do a lot with research and advocacy. So let's go one step back and talk a little bit about what is a doula. So I always like to say the easiest way to think about a doula, a doula is like a three-in-one personal coach. A doula is actually a, what is the simplest way to think about it. It's like a labor and delivery and birth coach. We work with both parents, the birthing person and the support person, and actually even I've had very beautiful moments where I've worked with whole families. So we worked with even like the younger siblings and how they can support the birthing person through that process. Um, three in one in that one, we are your advocate in the birthing room. So we talk about in our one-on-ones as we're preparing for birth, we talk about your rights. We talk about what your preferences are and we're there to sort of create that space between you your partner and your provider in the birth room about, okay, how do I protect my rights? How do I actually advocate for what I want? So number one, advocate. Number two, cheerleader. We provide emotional support, physical support, and informational support. So we're here to really remind you that you are about us. You know how to do this. Your body is built to do this. And really, it's, it's just about creating a space and an environment that allows you to do what you're capable of doing. And thirdly, I joke and say that doulas are sort of like your personalized human encyclopedia in the back pocket, uh, because we are trained to know about maybe as many of the different interventions that happen at birth. And we're just able to help you make those informed decisions by giving you this information. Unfortunately, this is the situation in Egypt and also in many other countries in the world where the 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 medical providers will not spend a lot of time with the couple during the birth until the very end, until, okay, you're 10 centimeters dilated and I'm ready to push. And so, but there's a lot of time that passes before then. And there's a lot of decisions that need to be made before then. There's a lot of interventions that the system sometimes pushes you, whether routinely or not, to be subjected to. And so really the role of the doula in this case is just to create a bit of that space and add another layer of support um, to the birthing person and their family um, to try to really make that birth respectful and informed as much as possible. Um, and how do we do that in Egypt? Very carefully and very strategically, I guess. No, we work, I would say, with folks who are looking for this type of support. So usually we are approached by families who want that additional advocacy, who want that additional information, who want, yeah, to, to have one more person cheering for them and advocating for them with their providers. We also work with some providers. I can't say that the entire medical system in Egypt is anti-woman or anything like that, not at all. But when we talk about, yeah, and we'll talk about this in a minute, when we talk about such violence, we're talking about system level problems. So these system level problems, 
a lot of the time doctors and nurses and, and, and medical providers who work in the system, they, they, they are also affected by these problems that are system level problems. So um, yeah, some of many, many times the doctors that we choose to work with are women centered or women friendly in that they do understand the importance of having a doula. They, they believe that having a doula not only helps the family and the pregnant person have a more positive birth experience, but also helps them do their job better. So yes, you already mentioned it, obstetric violence. We need to look at it as a, as a global systemic problem that is not just happening in Egypt, that is not just happening with three doctors, because then it wouldn't be yeah. systemic, but that it's something yeah. that is affecting birth overall. So it would be great if you could give us a definition and then your opinion about it, your intervention. What do you have yeah. to say about it? What do I have to say about it? Wow, that is that I feel like you've you've picked the wrong person because I have <laughs> a lot, I have a lot to say about obstetric violence. I am I'm a nerd about this subject. I wrote my master's thesis on obstetric violence in Egypt and the, the Middle East or the MENA region. So really I, I have a Good. lot. I have a lot to say, and I have a lot to say about what science and the literature and public health has to say about obstetric violence. So I will be very happy to share with you my personal opinion and what, yeah, the scientists and other yeah. women have actually said. I, I think um, I'll preface this by saying, I mean, what the approach I used when I conducted my, my research for uh, my thesis is a feminist approach to the subject. So really, for me, it's extremely important that we're centering women at the end of the day all the time. We're centering women's voices. We're creating spaces for women to share their stories so that we can eventually improve things for women. I mean, if we're, if we're missing the, the, the key player, if we're creating systems that are not focused on really what women want, then like, what's the point? So... Before we deep dive into obstetric violence, I want to share with you a very interesting um, statistic that I came across. There is a very massive survey that went out to, I think it was like 130 countries. This was about like three years ago. It was before the pandemic. So maybe it was like four years ago. And they asked women all around the world, what is it that you want from your healthcare? And women across the board said one thing. Can you potentially take a guess what this is? One I, word. I gave birth, right? So I should know. <laughs> what did I miss? And care, it wasn't just care. I would say care, support, care. Yes. Care. Yes. Yes. So it was, it was respect. Across the board, whether it was birth, whether it was contraceptive care, whether it was normal, like gynecological care any anything related to the big reproductive health yeah continuum umbrella however you call it the one thing that women across the board had asked for is respect and i think that and the, the idea or the the language around respectful maternal care is really really important when we talk about obstetric violence so obstetric violence is it's a system level problem, totally like you said. It's a system level problem that exists at the intersection of sociocultural norms and the health system. And what that means is 
just like we talk about gender-based violence as an umbrella that exists, it's embedded in, in society in a lot of ways. And because it's embedded, it's in a way, it's invisible. I'll give you an example. Here in Egypt, it's extremely, extremely, extremely common for women to have C-sections. Egypt has the, the third, maybe, I think we're, we've surpassed the, the third level ranking now, but latest data puts us at the third highest C-section rate globally. And there's a lot that, again, we can look at from the health system side. So why, why are, I mean, over the reported number in Egypt is... 65% of women having C-sections, but I'll tell you all of my friends who work in the health sector and all of the women that I work with as a doula, the unofficial number is probably closer to like 80 to 90. Nine out of 10 births end up in a C-section. There's a lot that we can talk about from pressure in the society and pressure from the medical system that pushes women towards this. So Taking a step back, when we're talking about obstetric violence, it is so normalized in society that in a way, the, the, the subliminal message that we're telling women is that it's normal for you to expect disrespectful care or unconsented care or, yeah, that your, your provider yes. is going to talk to you in a certain type of way or that maybe you're going to leave your medical appointment feeling like, I don't have enough information. And what we're telling women, and honestly, what, what our families and our societies and our mothers even are telling us is, yeah, of course, it's normal. This is birth. Or even from, from and it, it also, it's, it's a much bigger conversation that we can talk about, about the language that we're using with birth. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of intimidation. There's a lot of, um, yeah, there's a lot of misinformation or a complete lack of information to make your own decisions. There's a lack of autonomy. There's a lack of decision-making power, which is very sad because at the end of the day, just because you are a pregnant person who is having a baby, it doesn't mean that you lose your rights. But this is what I mean by it's a system-level problem and it's because it intersects the health system and sociocultural norms, it's very invisible. We've normalized it so much that when we, yeah, when a, a typical, your average woman is expecting and is going to her medical appointments and is hearing the stories from her aunties and her sisters and her neighbors, all of the stories that she's hearing are normalizing that yeah, it's, it's, of course, your doctor is probably not going to give you enough information. Of course, you're uh, going to be cut or you're going to be pushed to have a cut, whether that's a C-section or an episiotomy. Of course, no one is going to tell you what's, what's in the needle that's going in your body when they are putting medicine in you or putting oxytocin. saline solution or oxytocin. Exactly. Which, I mean, even, yeah. I think that there's a much bigger conversation that needs to be had about the process of informed consent, whether that is in Egypt or globally. And I, the, the literature, the evidence, the, the, what women are saying, not just in Egypt, but around the world is this is a problem. There is very high levels of disrespect in birth. 
women are leaving birth traumatized and birth is already a very lonely experience, especially in postpartum. And what's happening as a result of obstetric violence is that what women are maybe imagining as a very either scary, but eventually beautiful moment, they're coming out of it traumatized. And the numbers, I mean, show us that we're talking about one in three women globally who are reporting these very traumatic births. And that has a lot of implications, not just on um, birthing people and their, their newborns, but on families and on, yeah, the physical, the mental, the emotional, the psychological, the spiritual, and the generational health that we're talking about. So Girl, you got me started on obstetric <laughs> violence and I can keep talking about this. Forever. And you know what? But, I have to hold myself because I have to, to add a lot of other stuff as well. And I'm like, uh, should I say something? Should I not say something? Should I keep there, it for There's <laughs> so much to say about this. But yeah, and I think because it's a systemic problem, the reality is we need to work on this at so many different yeah, levels. Absolutely. We need to change society. We need to change how we're talking about birth. Yes. We need to... In, use advocacy we need to use education we need to in, set up mechanisms within the actual health system for accountability at a national level at a legal level at the policy level i mean at every level there needs to be some interventions that um yeah are introduced and i'm yeah, i i wrote extensively about this for uh, for my studies i'm very happy to share some additional information And I think the last thing that I'll just put in there when we're talking about obstetric violence as a systemic problem is that the reality is we also need to approach obstetric violence like any form of violence that we talk about, especially gender-based violence from an intersectional lens. The reality is obstetric violence happens in every health system, in every country, regardless of how rich or poor, to women, regardless of, of... Yeah, many different factors. But the fact of the matter shows us that women whose identities put them at a greater risk of obstetric violence are usually those who are younger, are usually those who are poor. And this is just what's documented. And this is what just what women have already shared. But the reality is it we need to use an intersectional lens to look at this problem, especially when we're talking at system level at a global level um, and i guess you you saw it firsthand when you were in the states what you described yes. earlier it was a community clinic for people of color um being served or uh, treated uh, taken care of by people of color and yes. i know also in the u.s it's a huge problem that a lot yes. of women of color actually die while they're giving yes. birth yes. babies die babies are premature um yes. yes so and and i guess in egypt It's probably, um, I don't know, I guess the class also plays a huge role in Egypt, right? Yes. For us in Egypt, the, the issue is less around race. Yeah. Where a generally, yeah, ra- race is less of a lens for Egypt, but class and socioeconomic yeah. status and access to services, especially high quality services, is definitely another angle. And Mirat, how can birthing people become their own medical advocates during pregnancy and labor? What kind of, like, let's say, really hands-on advice can you give? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. I think 
I would say this comes in three steps. Step number one is learn, read, research. Information is so extremely accessible now with with the internet, with so many different sources, so many different languages. Information is available. Prenatal education is a necessary thing. And the more you know about what's going to happen, the more you're able to prepare. I am a big, big, big advocate, um, and I say this all the time, information is power, knowledge is power. So step one, take a childbirth education class, bring your partner, bring your support person with you, and take a class. Know, Know your options, know what's going to happen, know what the general process of birth in the hospital or in the country that you're going to be delivering in is like. That also... Part of that, part of knowing the process and studying the process is knowing your rights. So part two is prepare a birth plan. That will help you not only prioritize your options, it helps make sure that you know your rights. And third, it helps you negotiate or have a conversation with your provider. What are some of the main questions that I need to know from my provider about how things are going to go down? This is a tool. It's very easy to do. It's very accessible. There are so many templates online. You can also get, we have a free one on our website. So you're welcome to access it from your Egyptian doula. Um, And it's just a guide to help you think through what are the common things that happen in birth? What are my priorities? And what are the main questions that I need to ask my provider to eventually be able to have an informed discussion, land at an informed decision, and have informed consent be a part of my birthing process. And the third, I would say, is if you are able, hire a doula or have at least a session with a doula, you and your birth partner, your birth support person. If you are able to have a doula, an additional advocate with you, that is always a help. And the evidence is out there about how much I mean, doulas help improve not only the experiences of birthing people, but also their their health outcomes and their baby's health outcomes. Yes. I mean, I had a doula for my third birth and we can talk about it later. And she changed my whole life, everything. She healed me. My birth was incredible. I went into my birth so empowered, so knowledgeable. I didn't take any bullshit from any doctor. I didn't fall for their kind of tricking me and whatever. And and she was there from massaging my feet to massaging my head to like on so many levels. And I, I, I'm with you on that. Like really, if, if you can afford it, if you have access to it, even maybe if you cannot afford it, maybe some people can support with some um, monetary donation but i'm yeah i'm very much in favor of, of doulas yeah that's why i'm also speaking with you today obviously and you are also because of course there are different uh, kind of trainings that doulas or uh, childbirth educators can 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 do and you did the lames training i hope i said lamas i hope i said correctly so it would be really nice if you could actually share with us what it's about and also some healthy birth practices that, um, yeah. yeah. Sure. I'd love that. Um, so I did my training as a birth doula. So that is one type of birth worker. And that is much more related to like coaching and supporting and advocating 
And those are people who usually attend the births with you and your partner. And there are also um, childbirth educators. And those folks are generally, they're educators. So we do prenatal education. Um, And I did, like you said, I did my trainings through an organization called Lamaz. Lamaz is one of the oldest and maybe the largest childbirth education organizations. Lamaz was known as a breathing technique to help um, guide moms through labor. But now it's actually the most evidence-based childbirth education curriculum. So what they did is actually they took the WHO recommendations and they tailored a childbirth education curriculum around it. And you know me from all my rants so far, I love evidence. (laughs) Anything related to how do we take the best practices and make them applicable and make them digestible and make them easy for us to use as people and as birthing people, that's that's what I'm here for. So what I love about Lamaz is that they're very evidence-based. It's very comprehensive. And they've really simplified the the six healthy birth practices is what they're most known for into pretty much if you don't know anything else or if you don't remember anything else going into birth at least you can know these six things that are the six pretty much quote-unquote most important things to know about having a positive and healthy birth experiences ah, birth experience so what what are the lama six, six healthy birth practices try saying that six times very quickly <laughs> um they are the six top recommendations on on having a positive and healthy childbirth experience. So if you literally just Google Lama's six healthy birth practices, you'll it'll come up. Each of these six healthy birth practices, there is tons of research about why we recommend this. So I'll give you a couple of examples since you asked. So one of these, for example, I think it's number six, is keeping mom and baby together as soon as the baby is born. And this, uh, there's a lot of research about this, about how important this is for the mom and the baby. Uh, people talk about the golden hour and protecting the golden hour because it helps the birthing person heal. And it also helps the baby heal <laughs> as a new person in the world. I'll tell you here in Egypt, it's very common to immediately separate mom and baby as Yeah, different procedures are done. This is a very routine practice here, but it goes directly against the recommendations from the science. Um, Another example is moving. Moving as much as you can to help speed up labor, to help make labor more comfortable. And I mean, I, I can tell you from Egypt and you're nodding, so I'm sure you've also maybe seen this or experienced this. It's very common that um, hospitals and medical providers will sort of keep women on their back yes. um, and find different excuses. And sometimes those excuses are totally valid. And other times it's just a routine intervention that happens and it, it stalls the labor. It results in other interventions being introduced. It results in maybe needing to take oxytocin or pitocin to yeah. speed up the labor. And the reality and it is... And also, it also gives you, as the birthing person, the perception of, I'm sick, I'm weak, there's something wrong with me, I need to, I need to lay. Yeah. Instead of, no, I can move or I can sit or I can sit on a birthing ball or I can be yeah. in, a, in, a, in, a, in a swimming pool, like in a, in a, in a bath, yeah. right? Totally. Or I can have a shower. But this totally. whole thing of laying is already like, you're so passive. You are like... Yes. Yeah. And I mean, if you think about it, 
any person who is going number two, yeah. whenever you're going, yeah. whenever you're trying to get something out of you, you're yeah. usually not laying down. It's just <laughs> not, that's like not how gravity works. And exactly. it's, it's the same thing. So yeah, another birth practice would be choosing the position of your choice, your birth position of choice that is helping you. And most of the time, women will gravitate towards positions where they are using gravity to their advantage, whether that's mm. squatting or sitting on their hands and knees. And my personal favorite, because it just it applies so much in the context that I work in, it's avoiding routine interventions, which, ah, here the there are just so many routine interventions that happen in birth that shouldn't. I mean, there's just a very big overuse of like unnecessary unnecessary routine interventions. Routine interventions are there for a very good reason. But when they are overused, when they are unnecessary, when they are unconsented, all of that is obstetric violence. <laughs> all of that is a, a system level problem when every single woman that's coming in for a birth is automatically cut for an episiotomy where, I mean, we're just creating more space for the baby's head. Most of the time, it's because she's not in a position where she's able to push properly. But anyway, we can get on that side tangent. Same. But like you said, induction is another big one or um, giving women oxytocin, maybe when they've rejected it or maybe without asking them or telling them that you're going to give them a medication to make the labor go faster. Yeah. So the Lamastic Healthy Birth Practices are a really, really beautiful and simple guide for anybody who's looking to just get a, a quick crash course on what, what do I need to know? They're easy guiding principles. So I would encourage anybody who's maybe preparing to have a, a baby or thinking about birth who is not ready to take a full-on edu childbirth education class and understand all the things. These are maybe like the six quick, easy recommendations that are that are going to really guide you and help you yeah, have a better idea about what to expect and what you should um, yeah, be expecting from, from a positive and healthy and evidence-based uh, childbirth experience. Yes, yes. And that takes us to another uh, important subject that we've also already touched about, it's language, the way we talk about birth matters. For instance, yeah. when I, uh, I did a hypnobirthing course for my, my third child, yes. my daughter, and the, the, the educator, she also then became my doula, she was saying, we don't use the word contraction. We say mm -hmm. search. We say wave. And I was like, wow. And yes. then when I was actually birthing my daughter, because of all the things that I learned there, whenever I had a contraction, I was thinking about waves. I was thinking yes. about my favorite beach in Greece. Yes. And every time I had a contraction and this incredible amount of pain, because birth is painful. I mean, that is, that is a fact, but it's just the way how we deal with the pain. So every time I had a con contraction, first of all, I was using in my mind the word surge, wave. And then I was picturing that beach in Greece. And it was, and, and I was imagining myself in the water, you know, and it was just, yeah, it, it changed everything. Just this, this one word, for instance, eh? or the fact that we don't say delivery, what we say, we're going to birth a baby. At yes. least that's, that's because delivery is like, okay, I'm going to deliver a pizza, you know, it's like, bloops, yes, no. yes, yes, yes. So yeah, but you can share, share more about it. 
No, absolutely. I think you you hit the nail on the head. I mean, birth is an extremely active process. And we forget that um, the baby is also a very big active player in, in the story. And I think sometimes when you when when women are, are subjected to um, unnecessary obstetric interventions in birth, you and I I will say this really from from the the stories that women have shared with me and the stories that I've read of women so many women feel like they are subjects mm-hmm. in birth mm-hmm. like they're just their bodies are just tools and the reality is you're not you're still there you you are being born also you are birthing but you are also being born into a parent the day that you meet your little one um, and there's something very powerful about that. So I, I completely, yeah, I echo what you're saying. Birth is an extremely active process. And it's important for a lot of people to recognize that, no, I have power and I have agency and I have rights and my baby has rights. <laughs> and like, I have a voice in the situation. I get to decide who is going to penetrate my body for a vaginal mm-hmm. exam, mm-hmm. when that's going to happen how that's going to happen, if I'm comfortable with that happening, how many times I want that to happen. That's just one example. Yeah, maybe we can actually say that um, it can be refused. Like, for instance, I didn't know it with my first births. I thought, okay, whenever they're going to want to check me down there, I have to open my legs and let it happen. And then I learned, no, I can say I don't want it. Or I can say, yeah, you can do it, but I don't want to know how many centimeters uh, I am because it's going to stress me out. I mean, if you're in an incredible amount of pain and then they tell you, oh, you are three centimeters. This is just going to stress you out, and it's not going to help you to to get the whole process, uh, yeah, started. Moving. That's right. So Absolutely. yeah, moving exactly. So with my daughter, for instance, I told them from the start, "You're going to touch me when I say yes, and if I don't want to know the centimeters, you're not going to tell me." And they were yeah. like, oh, "Of course." They didn't like a lot of the the attitude that I brought in there, but in the end, yeah, that's how it was, and it helped me a lot. So just for the listeners, you don't need to be touched down there if you don't want to do. If you don't want yeah, it. I- and totally, like exactly what you said, Salah, it's your birth, it's your body, it's it's your day, it's your baby's birthday. It's the day that you are also being born as, as a parent for the first, for the third, for the sixth, for the 17th time. Every one of those times is unique. Yeah. The other thing I really think is, is important when we talk about birth is um, talking about fear. I think you started touching on this. Um And I think this is a very powerful thing that we we underestimate our minds and we underestimate the power of language. Uh, We underestimate the the narrative, right? Like, and I think this applies to everybody, regardless of whether or not you're birthing. The way that you're talking to yourself inside of your head dictates how your body is going to react, how you are going to react, how you're going to perceive any type of situation. And it goes, it's the same in birth. If the language I'm hearing and the language I'm I'm feeding, if the inputs in my head mm-hmm. or even the stories that I'm hearing around me are birth is really painful, I'm really weak, I can't do this, I need to have a C-section because if my vagina is traumatized through birth, my husband is going to divorce me. I'm not strong enough to push through labor or I'm 
yeah, my, my pain tolerance is just too X, Y, Z. All of that affects how your body reacts versus if I tell myself, I can do this. I'm working together with my baby. We are a team. We've been a team since the beginning. And this is just the beginning of us being a team. My body is strong. I know how to do this. Yeah. I'm birthing with so many people around the world right now. So I, I come from a lineage of strong people, right? Yes. Like it's it's just about also the, like the language. Totally. Like again, with my daughter, I have to bring it up again. Every no, day I was listening to affirmation, affirmations every single day for, I don't know, two, three months. Sometimes yes. I would fall asleep with them. And that was also good because it goes into your unconscious. So I was hearing the things that you said. And also my body is beautiful. My body is carrying life. My body can do it. Blah, blah, blah. And it was incredible. Like it helped and so much. So I'm just have to, I just have to echo what you just said. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, hypnobirthing is a very, very beautiful tool to use. And I've worked with many, many moms who've also taken it and it's, it is very effective. And really the other thing is, I think the key word that you said is a subconscious working on your subconscious as part of preparing for birth is super important. I think we hold on to a lot of fingerprints in our subconscious that sometimes just need to be released before we're able to enter birth or yeah, maybe. Yeah. I think that there's just some subconscious work that needs to be done. I've worked with some moms who maybe due to miscarriage or maybe due to loss We're very traumatized and we're very afraid to let their body do what it needs to do to meet their rainbow baby or other folks who maybe because of the pandemic or because of, I mean, I think all of us at this point know somebody who um, didn't make it because of the pandemic. I think all of us in a way are also dealing with grief and loss and fear. And it's important to deal with some of the subconscious and psychological implications of that before we're able to welcome the next Mm-hmm. yeah it's beautiful it's complicated it's transformative but it's yeah you you are in the driver's seat that day and that's something that we fight to make sure that nobody takes that away from you thank you wow you have such a nice energy and so much passion in it i love it and oh thank you <laughs> yes it is it is it is very very great Because you have also, as I said, so much experience on so many levels and all, bringing all this together is so powerful. And Mirat, who has been your soul? Who inspired you? Share with us. Oof, I love this question. <laughs> and it's also so hard. <laughs> uh, can be more I than one I'm, person. I think I think it has to be more than one person. Yes. I'm inspired by many people. And I, I, carry, I carry many. Um, yeah, I think... I think to simply answer this question, I think I believe very much that we we always stand on the shoulders of the giants mm. who came before us. Mm. And I think um, giants look like many different people, ranging from the first people and the first doulas who I, I am very grateful that I come from their lineage. So the, the first midwives, the Egyptians, who honored 
birthing positions, not laying on your back. And I mean, you can go to the temples and, and see them carved in the hieroglyphics, which I think is just so amazing. Again, I told you, I'm a nerd about this stuff. Yes, you said at the beginning. And yes. I think on your website, <laughs> you say it as well. Yes. Um, to women who continue to advocate to this day about the need for women's rights to be protected in birth, to women who continue to share their stories and moms who continue to share their stories, to make sure that obstetric violence is not the story of other moms. Um, and I think on that note, I cannot not share that I also look to my mother for a lot of inspiration. And I feel very uh, privileged to be able to come from a lineage of matriarchs who are all badasses. And um, I hope to carry just a drop of their light uh, and a drop of their strength in, in this very strange world. Um. Yeah, I got goosebumps now. <laughs> oh, wow! Wow! <laughs> Me and, too. And and to whom do you want to pass the salt? And what do you have mm. to say? What is your message? Yeah, I think I think a couple of people. Um, there's a a saying that actually one of my, my former clients shared with me that I will forever hold on to because I think it's very beautiful. And it's, it was one of her guiding um, affirmations throughout her birth. And she's continued to share this with so many of her family and friends and people in our community who've um, yeah, been born into mothers. Hmm. And it's, it's this quote, I think it's, it's literally like, it's probably, you can find it all over Pinterest and Instagram, but It says there's a secret in our society and it's not that birth is painless, but it's that women are strong. So I think I, I first want to pass the salt to expecting parents and birthing people to remind them that the language that you're listening to and the stories that you're listening to matter and holding your truth and holding your truth very centrally and harshly you got this, you are strong enough to do this, you are resilient enough to do this, and you have power, You're, you have power to do this. Yeah, so that would be the first. I also want to pass assault to all the birth workers and women's health advocates out there, because this is not easy, y'all. <laughs> this is very, very tiring sometimes, and it's hard to believe that we are in 2022 and we are still talking about some of these things. Um, so folks who are working in SRHR advocacy, folks who are working in research, in the practitioners, the legal side, advocacy is not easy. And I, I am grateful for their inspiration. And I want to hope to pass salt to all of us, <laughs> I guess, who need inspiration to keep going. And I think finally, I also want to pass the salt to the medical providers Because this is not easy, especially working in these pandemic times. Putting your families and yourselves at risk is scary. And to be able to be advocates for your, your patients, your clients, mothers, their families, for you to be able to be guardians of that space is so important. And you play a massive role in making sure that, yeah, birthdays begin beautifully and mm. birthdays for babies and for moms and their families begin with a happy memory instead of a trauma 
And so, yeah, I think really we we owe uh, a big applause to all health workers and also um, a little poke to make sure that we support them in these very difficult systems that they're working in. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. And what's your question for me? Yeah, Stella, thank you for for (laughs) hosting me and for all of your beautiful questions. Ah, I I have many questions for you, but I think I have to just choose one, I guess. Yeah, Um, just say what you want to ask and then I see what I answer. (laughs) I guess... What would be one piece of advice that you would give someone who is expecting? What is one thing that maybe made a huge difference for you uh, or something that you wish that you would have known? So I had, so I was pregnant four times. I birthed three kids. I had one miscarriage. Um, My first son was premature, 25 weeks, 820 grams. So it was a very yeah heavy experience. We spent three months in the hospital. My second son was born 40 weeks, almost four kilo. Again, I went into birth um, not really knowing. And then with my, uh, then the third one was a miscarriage. And then with my daughter, I said, no, enough. So my biggest advice is, you said it today, prenatal education. Prenatal education made such a difference to me such a difference knowing things knowing your rights knowing that birth doesn't mean laying down and pushing out a baby and just following instructions from the doctors educating yourself means knowing what is oxytocin what does it mean to be induced and why is it not something that you should do if it can be avoided how are you going to i don't know that, that you have access to a doula if you can also if you look for a birth course Really do research. Don't go for the first birth course that you find on the internet or somebody tells you. Go for the birth course maybe that somebody shares with you with passion, like what you did today, you know. Also look for something a little bit more alternative. So for me, it's really a lot about prenatal education and a lot about what you said also what kind of language are you going to listen to? Because if we look on TV, birth is always portrayed as something horrible where women swear at their partners, where you have breaking waters, like as if it's like, I don't know, a whole uh, flood coming out of your vagina. It's so unrealistic and and it's, it's, it it just doesn't help. You know, then you hear, I remember my mother telling me, yeah, birth hurts. (laughs) That's it. She just shared the horrible birth she had with me. And then that my brother was much easier, but that's it. I mean, she also didn't remember much. But yeah. And in that case, you were super lucky with your mom. But it's about all these horrible stories that we hear. And um, so for me, listening to affirmations was so helpful and watching videos. You know, I was always avoiding watching birthing videos. I don't know why. No, I remember when I was studying in London, my, my friend from Jordan and from Kuwait, they were meeting in the house watching YouTube videos of birthing women. And I was like, oh my God, I'm not going to look at it, you know? But no, you have to watch it and watch beautiful births. You know, you can find yes. on YouTube, for instance, a birth through hypnobirthing. Um, it just makes such a difference. The visualization is one thing, positive visualization, positive All affirmations and educating yourself. So for me, it's really, I find the prenatal, um, how do you say, uh, care or knowledge very, very important because you will go with a completely different attitude into into your into your birth. And also what you said, the birth plan. When you're going to yeah. show it to your midwife, your doctor, 
depending on how it works in, in whatever country you're based, by putting certain things in there, they will see, oh, she knows. What do you yeah. mean here? What do you mean with this? So they already yeah. know, okay, if she comes to her birth, she will come with an attitude, you yeah. know? So yeah, it, it's it's really about this. And it's this, what you said, working also with your baby. Like yeah. birthing my daughter was, I just did it with my breathing. I yeah. breathed her out of my body. And then at the end, I pushed two times, pick, pick, was like this. And then she was there, you know? And before I was like, what do you mean? I can birth my daughter with my, with my breathing. No, I need to push for one hour. No, you don't, you know? So it's really about, about this. Love it. Thank, thank you, you so you. much. Yeah. Thank you. What a amazing, powerful, educative, motivational conversation. <laughs> really? I, I am so appreciative for your space and for your podcast. Really? This has been so life-giving for me as well. So Thank you for the honor of being featured on here. Yes, of course. And we have to also honor somebody now at the end of the podcast, what I always do. And you actually kind of did it in some way, but I will just uh, give another um, emphasis on it. <laughs> yes, I want to honor all the doulas, childbirth educators, lactation consultants, midwives, nurses, doctors who support respectful maternal and birthing care who stand up against obstetric violence and make a change around the narrative of birth and how we birth. Those who don't perceive women and birthing people as being superhuman machines that push out babies with no rights. And I want to finish by saying that we need to give back the power to birthing people so they can use their birthing instincts, feel safe, feel heard, and respected. So it's so important to me that we change the narrative around birth together by building a future in which we get the medical help we absolutely need, because obviously we are not saying we don't need medical help. That's was not what we're saying today. And the power, respect, and autonomy we deserve, because the way we birth matters, as we said today. It matters for a long, long time. Yes, thank you so much. Again, I have to say for, for today, it uh, has been, uh, yeah, I wanted to speak with you for a long time, and today we managed. And uh, I will upload all the information you shared today on my Instagram, my website. And uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. And if you've been enjoying today, please share this episode. We really want to spread the word because uh, that's how we can make a difference. And um, yes, thank you so much. Thank you. Something that is loved is never lost. Stella Salieri and this is Salt the Podcast. Salt the Podcast. Salt the Podcast.